Hi, I'm your host, Dave Kemp, and this is Future Ear Radio. Each episode, we're breaking down one new thing, one cool new finding that's happening in the world of hearables, the world of voice technology. How are these worlds starting to intersect? How are these worlds starting to collide? What cool things are going to come from this intersection of technology? Without further ado, let's get on with the show. Okay, so we're joined here today by Dr. Nick Reed. Nick, tell us a little bit about who you are and what you do. Sure. Thanks for having me. Um, so I am uh, clinically trained as an audiologist. Um, however, I spend my, my sort of day job in this world of epidemiology. I'm an assistant professor in the Department of Epidemiology at Johns Hopkins University Bloomberg School of Public Health, which is a mouthful. And I'm core faculty at the Center for uh, the Cochlear Center for Hearing and Public Health, which is also um, at the Johns Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health. Awesome. Well, thank you for coming on today. It's great to uh, chat with you again. I know that the last time we spoke was when I was doing the Oak Tree TV videos. So sort of uh, the the natural progression of those is now the podcast. Um, But I wanted to have you on because like you mentioned, you know, you work at Johns Hopkins, uh, you know, you're working in the, um, you know, the whole epidemiology field. And I just find a lot of the work that you do super fascinating. I think that it's going to be really, um, I think a a really important piece to driving more awareness and more um, just of a broader understanding of the importance of hearing protection, hearing conservation, and the idea that hearing loss ultimately can lead to some pretty nasty comorbidities. And so I want to get, you know, into some of these different ways in which, you know, the work that you all have done outlines ways that you might be able to kind of mitigate that damage. And so to start with, I want to lead with the, the kind of the like end point, actually. I want to kind of like lead with the ending um, and we'll come back around to it. So recently, um, the Lancet, uh, the Lancet Commission on Dementia Prevention, um, they issued a list of different um, bullet points around ways to prevent dementia. And what was striking for anybody that's working, you know, in and around the, you know, the audiology industry, the hearing aid industry, the second bullet point read, encourage use of hearing aids for hearing loss and reduce hearing loss by protecting ears. Okay, so pretty black and white. Uh, Clearly, they're suggesting that if you wear hearing aids or if you conserve your hearing loss or you preserve it, um, chances are you're going to help reduce the risk of dementia. Uh, so we'll come back to this point because something I've thought a lot about, and, and this is where we'll kick things off is, um, to me as a layperson, <laughs> I thought it seems like a no brainer. If you have commissions like this that are outlining the importance of these types of solutions that you should, hearing loss should be more prioritized in the general healthcare setting. And one of the most obvious pieces of, I guess, low-hanging fruit would be, why does the general physician, when I go for my checkup, why don't I get a hearing test? Why don't I get screened for hearing loss in the same way that I get screened for so many other things? It's just, it seems to me like an obvious way that you could really help to identify a whole broad swath of, of hearing loss in the population, given that you know, obviously everybody kind of goes in and has these routine checkups, but you made a really good point and let's kick things off here. So can you describe why it isn't so black and white? Like why this is something that 
a general physician at this point in time isn't going to be doing these types of hearing screenings? Yeah, I mean, it's a it's a really good question. It's a really um, it's a really broad topic too. So, um, you know, there's been there have been you know recommendations over time, or people sort of shouting we should be doing this as part of standard procedures, and um, you know. Medicare itself has put hearing loss as something that is like a standard screening procedure, but there's no like, you know, bite to that. There's nothing that mandates it really. Um, and the way people screen is also always going to vary sort of vastly, um, whether they're going to ask a question, whether they're going to have some autoacoustic emissions or an actual audiometer that does screening. Um, but, you know, at its core, when the U.S. Preventative Task Force, for example, thinks about screening for hearing loss as part of um, common procedures, sort of. There's a lot of evidence now that hearing loss is associated with these big picture gerontologic outcomes, like, like you're pointing out with this, the, the updated Lancet Commission on dementia. So hearing loss is um, the largest modifiable uh, risk factor, essentially, but with attributable risk for dementia. Um, so, you know, it's, if you're if you're putting it that way to a certain extent it's like oh is it is it more important than even than alcohol consumption or hypertension um but from their perspective when they think about screening there's nothing for them to really say okay if we do something about this which screening has to lead to some sort of action otherwise it's doesn't have a real reason or to be done um there's nothing that says like well a if we screen does that mean they will get hearing aids for example and then B, do hearing aids even do anything? Um, so there's, there's a lack of evidence on the, the sort of treatment side. Like if, there, if everything is like, you know, cause and effect, the effect, we have no idea what sort of happens there. That makes a lot of sense. So it seems as if you need this validation. And I think that what's interesting are these, some of these like longitudinal randomized control studies um, and, and control trials um, that, you know, more or less would indicate to your point that this does in fact do something, that this, that this is in fact a solution. And working at Johns Hopkins, I know that you work with uh, Dr. Frank Lynn, who is conducting the ACHIEVE trial which I think is effectively trying to answer this question. Um, so let's get into this. Can you speak to the ACHIEVE trial, um, the parameters that are involved with it, and then ultimately kind of what it's trying to, uh, what it's trying to solve? Yeah, I mean, so the ACHIEVE trial is, um, it's the culmination of, you know, years of work where um, Dr. Lin, you know, Frank set up this whole line of research on cognition and hearing loss and, um, you know, he pointed out over and over again, uh, what people always bring up is, well, why don't you just use the data that's available, right? Like, why can't you say that hearing aids are protective in the data that already exists, right? If you can make the conclusion on cognition and hearing loss, why can't you do the modifiable? And the issue is that um, we don't actually have the counterfactual to, to sort of say whether they truly do anything or not, because hearing aids as I'm sure you've talked about in your, your podcast before, and I'm sure you know, um, they're highly associated with various socioeconomic factors like, uh, you know, wealth, education, um, but also just the propensity to do something about your health, which is going to affect then your, um, 
risk for cognitive decline, right? We know that education is protective. We know that wealth is protective. We know that people who are more likely to go to their doctors, um, you know, have better health, long-term health outcomes. So there's really a, a need for a randomized control trial, sort of that gold standard um, uh, model. And the ACHIEVE trial uh, was born out of years of work. Uh, it is a super interesting trial in that it leverages some science that already exists. And what I mean by that is the ACHIEVE trial is recruiting de novo people, but it also recruited people out of a cohort study that has been going on since 1987. So the atherosclerosis risk and community study is a large cohort study, um, four different sites around the country, um, Hagerstown, Maryland, Minneapolis, Minnesota, Winston-Salem, North Carolina, and Jackson, Mississippi. And it's, you know, typical long study. People have been coming, like in the beginning, they came in every few years, and there was sort of a break for a little bit, and then in recent years, they've come in every um, couple of years, and now they're actually moving to like every year doing some data collection. So um, this cohort is older. They're between the ages of um, the youngest can't be any younger than 65, and uh, and then we're looking at up to the up to 90s at this point. So uh, it's embedded in there. So when you recruit out of a cohort study like that, you sort of maximize your science in that you have 30 years of data on people, and you can look at that 30-year trajectory of their cognitive decline and then look at the point when they got a hearing aid and look if it changes their slope of cognitive decline. Um, I think people often sort of misconstrue in, in research, to be honest with you, this, this association of the effect of hearing aids um, on hearing and cognition. And one of the problems is, is if you give somebody, if you measure cognition, right, on Monday, you give someone hearing aids on Tuesday and remeasure their cognition on Wednesday, it might look like their cognition is better. But is it really better or did they just get access to the test materials um, and better access meant a better score? Uh, because in reality, cognition doesn't really improve like over time. We, we generally, as we age, just like hearing, there's not really a mechanism where it suddenly gets better and then gets worse, right? So to think about it, we're really not thinking about like, you know, improving cognition. We're just protecting from the slope of decline. And so the ACHIEVE trial embedded itself within ERIC. It also recruited uh, de novo participants. It's a thousand person trial. Uh, at this point, I, I think you, uh, recruitment is closed and we have like 988. We're like almost at a thousand. It was powered for only 850, but we went beyond that um, and ended up recruiting about 150 more just uh, it, it, it's not really to be safe, it was just to maximize the robustness of the analyses. Um, and then after people are in, uh, uh, and recruited to the study, they either receive best practice hearing care or they receive sort of a healthy aging equivalent. And what that healthy aging equivalent looks like is, you know, you sit down with a certified nurse um, and you talk about diabetes, physical fitness, nutrition, smoking cessation, um, it's just to make sure that they're also getting the same number of points with a healthcare professional um, uh, as somebody with uh, on the hearing side. So there could literally just be an effect of, you know, you met with somebody and talked about your health to some degree and that, you know, changed cognitive decline. So we're making sure that those match up as well. 
Um, the best practice hearing intervention is uh, using hearing aids. Uh, all the hearing aids are actually Phonak hearing aids. Um, they're the partner in the study to a certain extent. They donated the hearing devices. Um, and then it's a very robust sort of counseling tool uh, that was developed by Michelle Arnold, uh, Terry Chisholm, Vicky Sanchez. I had a very small role in it and just being sort of this tester. Um, so I won't, I, I won't take any credit at all, but Michelle is really the lead there and built a pretty robust counseling tool to go along with this. Um, so people come in, you know, really measures, best practice fitting, but then sort of a drawn out counseling, uh, various counseling sessions based off of a cozy. So, you know, you tell us what are your top three situations that you want to hear better in? And we sort of go in depth with tools to, to maximize those. So it's beyond just like, you know, here are some programs, but also when you're communicating with people, what can you do to make your um, communication smoother? And so everybody's enrolled and it's three to five years. At the end of uh, the three years of being in the study, you are offered the other intervention. And so there is also a chance to sort of look at uh, the group that were the controls, we'll see when they get hearing aids, what happens to them. So, so there is sort of, um, there will be a definitive answer at the end of this, but then there will be some studies that come out over time looking at following people longer. Yeah, I find that so fascinating. I remember the first time we talked about the ACHIEVE trial, I had gotten some feedback that said, you know, well, causation doesn't always equal correlation. And um, I understand that. And it seems like though the, you know, the randomized trial at this scale with the different, all of the different metrics that you're accounting for, it really does seem like you're trying to really, you know, parse through that and say, no, 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 this is correlation. Is that, would you agree with that? Yeah, so I think, you know what's interesting? I'm going to guess, um, I'll go off on a little bit of a tangent, I guess, about this correlation and causation. Um, you know, people say this, and it's true. Correlation is not causation. Uh, but, you know, that is why we do the research, and we do it over and over again. And um, I will say that I, I would, I would push a little bit back on just saying that it's not a causative association. The statistics are correlative and that's what you're looking for. Then you look for this inferential regression model. Um, but at this point in time, so in, in sort of an epidemiologic framework, we think about what's called Hill's criteria for causation, right? And there's these eight different criteria and there are things like, you know, do you see the same results in study after study in different populations? Do you see a dose response? Do you see temporality? Is there biologic plausibility? And, you know, we have now seen dozens of studies in different populations that show, using various different metrics even, that cognition is associated with hearing loss. And we've seen studies that have broken it down into various domains, and they even show sort of con consistently that a lot of it, there, there does seem to be this memory aspect to it, and that's not super well described, but but we're seeing that. We see it done with MRI studies now um, that show sort of the, the uh, brain structural atrophy associated with hearing loss. Um, we see it in cross-sectional studies, and then now we've seen it in temporal studies where they're longitudinal, and we can actually say hearing loss came first, or the hearing loss is there, and then we see a consistent decline at a steeper slope. So 
We also have sort of biologically plausible mechanisms for this. We, we can explain the association with reasonable, you know, science-based criteria. We see a dose response. There's not a strong, there's, there's not strong evidence for reverse causality. And when I say that, I'll put a caveat there. If anybody uses self-report measures of hearing or something like um, an APD type test or, you know, a speech and noise test, then yes, there is a reverse causation that dementia could cause problems on those tests. But peripheral, pure, uh, like, like pure tone audiometry as a peripheral measure, just being this displacement of the basilar membrane, there's not like a reverse causal aspect to that. And we've shown in study after study that adults with dementia even fairly reliable um, uh, pure tone audiometry results. And, and really what we're thinking about anyway is looking at like when we get to that dementia. So, you know, we've, we've hit all these major points of Hill's criteria for causation. So, so yes, it sounds smart to say correlation is not causation and you're right, but <laughs> you also have to take the entire body of evidence into account and really dig on this and think about what you're saying. Um, what we're doing with the RCT now is it is basically impossible to show that hearing aids modify this association, right? We just don't have it in, in secondary data. There's no counterfactual, right? Because, you know, for the, for the same person that doesn't have, or same person that has hearing aids, we don't have that same makeup without hearing aids, really. Like, you can try doing propensity matching, but it's just not, it's just not there. Um, and so, you know, you do see hints, though, of, um, uh, I always point out a study that, um, I'm blanking on the first name. Uh, I want to say uh, the, the author's last name is Mahmoudi, and Piers Dawes is actually on the paper. Uh, and you know they show in the same group, the, the, from before they got hearing aids to after they got hearing aids, they show their cognitive decline trajectory. And that's a pretty powerful study because it's the same people. So they sort of are their own controls and they, they, they are their own counterfactual. And I actually look at that and say, that's a, that's a good, that's good science, it's a strong study design, and it really does suggest that hearing aids are doing something. Um, the RCT takes that to the next level in that, you know, this is the gold standard to say that hearing aids will do something. So, so I mean, I think, yeah, I agree with you. I think, you know, it's, it's true that uh, correlation and causation, but, but there's also like different factors that are at play here. And I think, I think it's, you know, we, scientifically, we always hedge ourselves and we're not going to say like, oh, hearing loss causes X. Um, but at a population level, the attributable risk of hearing loss to dementia, the attributable risk of hearing loss to cognitive decline appears to be fairly independent and a reliable measure we're seeing again and again. Yeah, I think that was a very, really good explanation of that. I mean, I think that to your point, you know, at a you do these randomized control trials like this is the whole point is to isolate the issue to okay there is a causation here and there is a correlation and so um i guess where i'm curious about this now is where do you where does the achieved trial stand today and where how much longer is it intended to go what are some of the key findings that you found because it sounds like what you just said there that you've like hearing aids do make some sort of impact Again, I want to tie this all the way back to the Lansing Commission, which is saying that, you know, this is something that you can do to help to mitigate the chances of having dementia. And then, you know, you go a step further and it's like, well, the general physician, if they could just screen for this, 
But again, we got to get there. We have to have these randomized control trials validate this whole point. So what have been some of those key findings so far? Yeah, you know, it's sort of unfortunate. There's not a lot to talk about with the major ACHIEVE trial at this point because, you know, we look at some of the data for safety and efficacy reasons, but we don't really look at like the outcome variables, for example, because it is a double-blinded study. So the best practice science is that, you know, me as an investigator on the ACHIEVE study and Frank, uh, and Frank Land and Joe Koresh who are the, the principal investigators of the study, we shouldn't know what's sort of happening because then we may take actions to influence the study to sort of show what we want to see. So we're mm. blinded as well. Mm. Um, so we, we maximize things like I, you know, I was the recruitment chair of the study or I am the recruitment chair and we push to like make sure like the research is robust and we do the best we can, but we, we don't know what's really happening. So in about three years, we'll know. We, we are fully recruited. We have people that are actually two years into the study already at this point, um, or almost two years into the study. Like it's, uh, but it does take time. So in about three years, we'll have the end results of this study then you know, coming into publication. Um, but we do know from the Achieve P, which was a pilot study, which was a six month trial, um, you know, what we saw was these proximal outcomes for cognition. So we measured cognition, right? We, we did the same exact study design, but we measured, we measured cognition, but we also measured like social network, so social isolation. Um, we measured quality of life uh, metrics, uh, I think a few physical activity ones. And when you think about what we believe with the relationship between hearing and cognitive decline, we think these are all mediated by um, well, there, there's cognitive load, for example, uh, but then there's like this idea of like lifestyles and social isolation. So hearing loss causes social isolation, which causes cognitive decline. And in the Achieve P trial, this is actually really fascinating because it was it's truly a pilot trial. It's not meant to capture any data points. So no, uh, or what I mean by that is like there's no statistical inference you're supposed to pull from a pilot trial. Pilot trials are really meant to Make, make sure that you like work out the kinks, right? At, a, at their fundamental core, they're just meant to make sure that the, the logistics are good. And when we looked at the stats though, and this is published, um, Jennifer Deal is the lead author on this one. Uh, and you know, I could send you the paper, you could send to your audience if anybody's interested. Uh, you don't see in six months a significant difference in cognition. You do see sort of a trend, though, that the group that got hearing aids seems to be doing better than the group that did not get hearing aids, especially on memory and uh, in like a memory subdomain. And then we did see a significant change where from baseline, the group that got hearing aids, their social network grew in six months. They were so over the past two weeks, over a six month period when it was measured at three different time points they're reporting that they're making more contact and they're talking longer to people. The reverse was not true for the other group. So that the other group that was the control that didn't receive hearing care, they actually shrank their network a little bit, which is sort of normal as we age. We sort of shrink, it stays steady or shrinks a little bit. And there's, you could, you could almost say it stayed steady. It was like basically a zero. Um, and that there was sort of this significant difference. And if we believe that that's a part of the pathway here, and there's no way to say that that's sustainable or not, it was only six months, um, but if it is sustainable and it's something that you see, then, then yeah, we, we may be getting at 
truly improve it, like, it, you know, improving our rate of cognitive decline. Um, what's always, what I always find so fascinating about these trials is that was another one where we, we adhered, pre, even though it was a pilot, we adhered to the idea of um, blinding. And so I actually delivered the hearing intervention in that trial and had no idea what the outcomes were going to look like. And uh, for example, we had a, a technician who did the HHIE measures and we saw crazy strong you know, impact of hearing aid use on hearing-related quality of life, as well as like the RAND uh, SF36 and SF12, so qual just general quality of life metrics. Um, so a lot of those proximal measures we have seen. Um, as far as, you know, the, the major achieved trial, there's there's no results I can give you, but, but you know, we did, you did mention uh, that study with Piers-Dawes. Um, that was in the uh, health retirement study, and it's uh, it's over a very long, like 16 or 20 year period of time. And it looks at people who at some point got hearing aids. And it's just, you know, the the change in slope, like it's it's visually apparent if you actually look at the chart, like you can literally, see, it's not even mm -hmm. like a small change. It's, it's a very noticeable change that people have a steady state of cognitive decline over time, which is normal. We all have that. Right. And then when they get hearing aids, it just starts to level off just a little bit. It looks, you know, it really does suggest that something's there because that those within trial within subject trials are you know they're sort of my favorite design because you are your own control then and what what is better what's the best counterfactual like you yourself with and without an object is literally like the best counterfactual you can think about right i mean i think that what you said too about like the whole social piece to me is again as like a lay person that it just seems so obvious to me that like, of course, as you withdraw, as you can't engage in a conversation because it's too taxing on your brain or you've just lost interest because you literally can't hear in the situations, um, you know, and then you, you, you compare that to those that you've suddenly given this tool that allows them to engage. Of course, their social circle is going to expand. Like suddenly they might be, you know, if they're living in an assisted living facility, they want to go and do those uh, activities where they're engaging with some of the other people there. So in my eyes, it just seems like kind of almost obvious that like, yeah, that would make a lot of sense. And I know that these are things that, again, you have to use these trials and you have to use these studies and they, they take long periods of time to truly validate them. But that seems like uh, the type of thing where it would be, I think, a, a, a really big positive is that, again, just giving people the ability to re-engage seems like a big part of the root of the issue here. <laughs> yeah, I, I agree with you. I, I think... That one, it's it's funny you like key in on that one because I think that's like the most relatable like pathway that you can really think about. Like, mm -hmm. like yeah, like any I think anybody you explain this to is like, yeah, that makes sense. If you can't engage with people and you start to socially isolate and you withdraw, we we know sort of. Um, I, I, I don't want to say it's innate, but as like a human species, we sort right. of immediately see withdrawal as like a bad thing. Like people mm -hmm. just sort of get that and they're like, they're no, social species. Yeah. Like that is bad. Like we should not do that. And so, and, and, you know, I think a lot of people, because hearing loss is so prevalent among older adults, they sort of have seen this before. I, I always talk about um, uh, my, actually it's an interesting dichotomy between great grandparents on different sides of my family. One had a congenital hearing loss and grew up her whole life with hearing loss. Um, there, there's sort of a congenital uh, gene that runs on that side of the family. And 
Um, she did not use ASL. She was all oral, um, mainly because where she grew up in rural Tennessee, there was, there was no one to teach her ASL. So she was kind of forced, um, which is unfortunate. But, uh, you know, she learned coping mechanisms uh, throughout her lifetime. And she was very, very social. Whereas on the other side of my family, I think about uh, a great grandmother about the same age, late life hearing loss, you know, onset, and didn't do anything about it, never learned any coping mechanisms. No one really like tried to, to push her down that pathway, which, and I, you, you know, I can literally remember it's a big Italian family on that side of the family. And she is just sitting there not engaging with anyone. So even when the world around her is gregarious and everybody's talking, you could see the isolation and the impact on her. Um, and, you know, when you, when you think about that image, you're like, yeah, that is not, it's clearly not healthy, right? It's, there's something going on. So, mm -hmm. so yeah, I, I think it's, you know, I think that's, it's great that you pick up on that. And I think it's great that you highlight that for your audience. Cause that's a, it's a very natural one that we can sort of glean onto there. Yeah. And I think that kind of, as we wrap up here, I, get, I guess, going back to this whole thing, right? Like going from the top down to the trial, you know, okay, so we know that there are these commissions that exist, like the Lancet, which is a really, res you know, respected um, outlet. And, and they're, you know, saying like, hearing aids are a really good way that you might be able to reduce the risk of this. But then you go into like the idea of, well, how do we actually make this something that is a meaningful narrative, if you will? And I guess like, can you just, as we wrap, share like, what what's the hope for the end of the achieve trial like when you come out of that like is there hope that maybe this could be part of the uh i guess the the, the fuel toward getting more of the general population um largely maybe driven by the general physician population um to embrace this idea that this is something particularly in later life that can be a really effective way to combat all of these, you know, whether it be social isolation and what that leads to, like cognitive decline, these things. Like what's the hope here, I guess, um, three years from now when this is done? Um, I know that it's blind, so you, you, you can't, you know, you can't really see like where things are trending toward, but I'm just really curious, like in your mind, what's your hope for kind of like the end result here? Yeah, I, I mean, it's a really good question. And, you know, honestly, you, you can't say science is not biased because we do have hope and we do believe, like we wouldn't be writing these grants and putting all this effort if we didn't think it was going to show a positive result. Um, so uh, there's a couple of things. I think, um, you know, one, if you prove that hearing aids reduce the rate of cognitive decline among people with hearing loss, you open up a lot of doors. You do open up that door we talked about earlier with like the joint commission making, you know, hearing aid screening recommended instead of just sort of a neutral thing, but something that they, they want to happen. And even if they don't push that right away, it does open up the door, though, for, you know, there's this whole area of implementation science that this is you know, what I spend a lot of my time doing is how do we screen for hearing loss in the hospital? How do we make it work? How do we make it sustainable? How do we link it to immediate factors like communication with patient provider, uh, satisfaction with um, uh, medical care, which is linked to reimbursement rates for Medicare, so hospitals can actually make money? You know, it opens up a lot of doors because it shows this other sort of um, big picture part. Because right now, when we do that kind of in-hospital work, we don't have any long-term link because we haven't proven anything. So we, we, we sort of 
offer, you know, the in-hospital mediation between here's the science and now we're going to refer you on because we know that the science is good, right? And then, um, so it gives, it gives evidence that there's something about hearing care that's worthwhile to pursue in different ways. So it opens up a lot of quality initiative work there. But then what really excites me actually is, you know, the OTC Hearing Aid Act happened and it hasn't gone into effect yet, but you know, we're, we're somewhere near it. Mm -hmm. And there's complementary aspects though to that, that haven't occurred yet. And part of that is we need to think about Medicare reimbursing for, I mean, in part hearing aids for people with severe and profound loss, especially because the OTC mm -hmm. devices technically will only be for mild and moderate. And we need to think about the fitting and the oral rehab and the counseling yes. that goes around this. And when the Congressional Budget Office, which literally does this every year, people don't realize this is a regular thing. There's all these bills that come in that say we're going to cover hearing aids, right? And then they have to score the bill. And hearing aids are only a loss right now because there's no proof that hearing aids do anything for healthcare. Mm -hmm. If you prove that hearing aids delay the rate of cognitive decline and could delay the time onset to dementia, for example, even if it's just a few years, you can turn that into a health economic analysis and you could actually show dementia is so costly that hearing aids would be a cost effective thing. And then Medicare covering hearing aids would save Medicare in the long run, which I think all of us sort of think about this and we're like, yeah, that makes so much sense. But without evidence, again, the Congressional Budget Office says, okay, if 38 million adults in the U.S. have hearing loss and 80% of them don't have hearing aids and we assume they're all going to get hearing aids, it's just a massive billion dollar cost to them that they're not really going to eat. It makes every bill look bad. But now we open up that side. So politically, you know, we open up a real chance to have sort of a comprehensive hearing plan in the U.S. that we have OTC, we have various entry points, we have the hospital-based screening entry points, and then we have long-term coverage and support to maximize utilization, which that's the real goal, I think, in the long run is like a holistic, um, you know, I always think of it as like a spider web that it all works together instead of right now where we sort of have these disjointed efforts that nothing is really working. You know, we're, we're all operating in silos and I, I want to see it all in one place, which the research in a weird way sort of turns the key and lets all that sort of flow. That was maybe the most insightful, like five minute clip. I think I might need to like clip that because that was, <laughs> you're so spot on there. I mean, everything that you guys are doing at Johns Hopkins, I knew sort of inherently, like this is really, really, really important. And you just articulated why. And I like, I'm going to be thinking about this after this conversation for a while because you're so spot on there. I mean, you know, with regard to OTC, with regard to Medicare, it's, you're so right with it. It, you, we have to, as an industry, we have to, we have to get more people on board with the idea that this is a cost savings thing. You know, you're, you are getting ahead of such costlier problems down the road that, um, I just think that if we can start to really justify that, and this can be something, I mean, we constantly talk about this in the industry about the accessibility issue and like why OTC is a really big thing. 
but a lot of it really comes down to hearing aids are really expensive and they're not insured. And so if you can start to make these more insurable because you can justify the reasons why that changes the whole notion of everything, it flips everything on its head. And suddenly now the narrative changes to where people are looking at hearing aids in a totally different light because they're more of a preventative health tool. There's something that you can get ahead of. And, you know, like, like you said, you're going to save a whole lot of money down the line. And from a political standpoint, that's a much easier argument to make um, when you have some of this hard evidence that sits behind it and says, like, this is why you want to do this. That makes a lot of sense to me. Yeah, man. I, I mean, right on. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> well, awesome, Nick. Thank you so much for coming on today. Uh, always great to chat with you, get a good update on what's going on with you and the team over at Johns Hopkins. So, Thanks for coming on. Thanks for everybody who tuned in here to the end and we will chat with you next time. Cheers. Thanks for tuning in today. I hope you enjoyed this episode of Future Ear Radio. For more content like this, just head over to futureear.co where you can read all the articles that I've been writing these past few years on the worlds of voice technology and hearables and how the two are beginning to intersect. Thanks for tuning in and I'll chat with you next time.